Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Have you joined the Travel Club yet? Well, here's why you should. You'll be the first to know when we're on the go and you get to be part of some fantastic destinations and group trips and you get to meet and travel with some awesome people. The website is TravelingCulturati.com. Go ahead and join in the fun. Well, chatting with me today is Warren Green, a ranger, an officer, and an Ironman from South Africa who shares his passion for wildlife, his duty as an officer during apartheid in South Africa and his decision to participate in Ironman. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, let's get into a little travel news. Traveling to France during the protests, what you need to know. Yes, there are some protests that are going on in France right now. What's currently happening is that many people are unhappy with President Macron's pension reform, which will raise the full pension retirement age from 62 to 64. They're also angry that he used constitutional powers to push the reform through. In response, there have been strikes and street protests, some of which have resulted in violent clashes and destruction. This is why you might have seen some images of trash piling in the streets of Paris trains getting canceled across the country, or cars burning during protests. The new law isn't in effect yet, but the leading unions behind the strike action have vowed that demonstrations will continue until Macron cancels his reform. Where are the main trouble spots? Paris and most major cities, including Lyon, Marseille, Bordeaux, and others. Unions are announcing countrywide strikes a few days in advance, but in recent days, Ad hoc demonstrations have erupted in city centers. In more rural or smaller destinations, such as along the French Riviera, life has just been pretty much as normal. Some of the questions that may arise, for example, is it safe to visit or should I cancel my trip? Well, Britain's King Charles made headlines on Friday by canceling his March 26 through 29 state visit to France in light of the current unrest. But that said, there have been no official advice from countries like the UK or the United States about rethinking travel plans to France. An advisory from the U.S. State Department remains unchanged since October 2022 with France on a level two, which is exercise increased caution. And this status is due to the ongoing threat of terrorism and civil unrest. As always, travelers are advised to make sure they have appropriate insurance to cover. And just make sure to read what the insurance does cover or those what they call covered reasons. As far as airport delays, most long-haul flights have been unaffected, but there's been some impact on short-haul European and domestic air traffic. One recent nationwide strike led to reduced capacity at Orly Airport near Paris, but Charles de Gaulle has not had any effects because it's mainly international. Trains, public transportation, and roads are affected. Trains and public transport are where the visitors could feel the most impact or effects of the strike. On the strike days, currently occurring once or twice a week, the Paris Metro is unlikely to run and up to 25% of the TGV intercity high-speed trains are typically canceled. Cycling and walking remain the best ways to get around Paris, with gridlocked roads on strike days, meaning even taxis are inadvisable. So far, major highways between cities have been unaffected by the strikes. As far as museums and monuments and attractions, most tourist attractions remain open, except on strike days. For instance, both the Eiffel Tower and Versailles were closed during recent national strike days. So it certainly is worth it to check the attraction websites before visiting. For more information, you definitely want to go to any of the attractions, museums, or monuments websites. You can also look to RATP for Paris Metro and regional trains, SNCF 
for intercity trains, Air France for flights, and for getting about Paris, the City Mapper app seems to have the most up-to-date data and information on traffic and subway schedules. But there's no formal app or website that is specific to providing details regarding the strikes or protests as of yet. And as far as summer is concerned, well, it's just too early to tell. The situation is currently constantly changing, but Paris and France locals feel that this will end long before summer arrives. Well, spring may be here, but Utah is still experiencing some wonderful snow and skiing. (laughs) Winter is still holding on in Utah, and they're celebrating over 700 inches of snowfall in record time, and skiers are taking full advantage of it. The record-breaking snowfall milestone officially happened at Utah's Brighton Resort, which is located 30 miles southeast of downtown Salt Lake City, with 703 inches. Utah is living up to that tourism tag of having the greatest snow on earth. The 703-inch season of snowfall was recorded this past Thursday and is the earliest time this achievement has happened since Utah began recording snowfall since 1943, according to data shared with Travel and Leisure magazine. For Utah's Office of Tourism Management Director, Vicki Varela, the snow is postcard-worthy. Delta is adding Mexico, Costa Rica, and other Caribbean flights from their U.S. hubs. The airline will be increasing the number of daily flights to popular tropical getaways during the busy winter holiday season. That's coming up in 2023-2024. Yes, let's get ready for the holiday season. I know. New Yorkers will have numerous additional options for getting to the Dominican Republic later this year. After recently announcing that it is adding new seasonal service from New York, To Buenos Aires and Rio de Janeiro, Delta Airlines is now further expanding its service to Latin America and the Caribbean. The Atlanta-based carrier has unveiled plans to add more seasonal flights from December 16, 2023 to January 7, 2024 in what will be the largest ever holiday schedule to Latin America for Delta. With expanded service from major U.S. hubs to Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean, and South America. Why are we talking about this so soon? Well, because with airfares already on the rise, you want to get your holiday season locked and loaded well in advance. The extra flights could also make it easier for airlines to rebook passengers if the 2023 holiday season sees anything like the travel interruptions that occurred in 2022. So here's the breakdown of additional routes to Latin America that Delta plans to fly this year. Puerto Rico's San Juan Airport. These are all airports that are getting an increase of flights. Some have gone from one to two times a week to three and four times a week or even daily services. So you wanna check them out. So for New York's JFK Airport, Puerto Rico's San Juan has seen an increase. Bahamas, Nassau Airport, Dominican Republic, at Punta Cana, Santo Domingo, and in Santiago, Mexico's Cancun International Airport, and Areno or La Fortuna Waterfall in Areno, Costa Rica. And then additional flights from Hartsville-Jackson Atlanta International Airport will include increased flights to Aruba, Mexico's Cancun International Airport, Costa Rica's Danielle International Airport in Liberia, Costa Rica's San Jose International Airport, Jamaica's Montego Bay Airport, Puerto Rico's San Juan, Mexico City's International Airport, and Mexico's Airport in Puerto Vallarta, also Honduras's International Airport. And they're also adding flights from other U.S. airports like Detroit's Metropolitan Airport to Mexico, to Cancun, and to Cozumel, also flights from Minneapolis. Earlier this year, Delta announced that it is launching a new nonstop flight between Los Angeles and Auckland, New Zealand, which will make it the only U.S. carrier offering the long-haul route when it takes off on October 28, 2023. So lots of changes, lots of expansions and additions on Delta. Are you into porches? 
Well, I came across this article in Foders on the 13 best hotel porches in America. So if your vacation is all about sitting on the porch and having a fantastic view and relaxing and just watching the day go by, Hotel Del Coronado in California, Triple Creek Ranch in Montana, The Lodge at Gulf State Park, Alabama, The Madrona in California, Grand Hotel in Michigan, Inn at Hastings Park in Massachusetts, The Omni Homestead in Virginia, The Pelican Grand Beach Resort in Florida, Omni Mount Washington Resort in New Hampshire, The Otasaga in New York, Ocean House in Rhode Island, Grayfield Inn in Georgia, and Cavallo Point in California. So yeah, if you want that slow-paced vacation where you can sit on a porch with a cup of coffee or maybe a glass of wine and do some people watching or just take in the view, you want to check those out. Can you believe millennials are turning 40? Yes, and they have changed travel as we know it. Let's talk about these middle-aged millennials. (laughs) I know it sounds even funny to say it because we've been talking about millennials for so long. And yes, they're now approaching middle age, turning 40, with children of their own, often defined as those born between 1981 and 1996. A generation long defined by youth has now transitioned into a new phase in life, and they've changed travel. They're bringing their tech savviness, social consciousness, and their spending habits in tow. So for starters, millennials are traveling at higher rates than other age groups, edging out the far wealthier baby boomer generation. And this is according to research company Morning Consult. When it comes to nearly all travel behaviors, millennials are the generation most likely to engage, and they do so often. For example, 18% of millennials have taken three or more domestic flights in the past year, compared to just 10% of Gen Xers and 6% of baby boomers. Millennials' travel habits are changing, though. Partying is now out, but other things are now part of their travel desires. They see travel as a right rather than a privilege and consider their travel experiences to be a part of their identity rather than a check on a bucket list. So spending, but not splurging. Money worries are causing millennials to delay everything from home and car purchases to marriage. Yet they still value the idea of vacationing over adding a few more dollars to their savings. And this is according to a report from GWI Travel. They are way out in front of other generations in deeming vacations to be very or extremely important to them. Average expenditure per trip from travel insurance policies sold for trips departing between 2020 and 2023. Baby boomers, for example, $6,126. Gen Xers spending $5,060. Millennials, $4,141. And Gen Zs, the new up-and-comers, $2,788. That's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back... I'll have Warren Green, a ranger, an officer, and an Ironman from South Africa. He'll share his passion for wildlife, his duty as an officer during apartheid, and his decision to participate in Ironman. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website. It's TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, don't forget to join the Travel Club so that you can travel with us. We are going to some fantastic places. Coming up in 2023, we're going to Croatia. That will be July 28th through August 6th. We're celebrating. Yes, Advantage International, the sponsor for Traveling Culturati, is celebrating its 25th year. 
And its principals are celebrating some big milestone (laughs) B-Days. So you want to make sure that you come with and celebrate with us. It is going to be epic, I'm telling you. Going to Croatia from Split to Dubrovnik on a private chartered cruise, yacht or small cruiser, if you will. Only 17 cabins on board. We're going to have cooking classes because the food in Croatia is amazing. And the chefs on board are amazing as well. So we'll have some wonderful dining experiences, some cultural experiences, as well as some wine tasting. And of course, some water sports. Yes, because we are cruising. And the beautiful thing about a small cruiser, and especially a privately chartered one, is that we get to do it our way. And we are going to have a fantastic time. Don't miss out. We are already selling out cabins. You can go to TravelingCulturati.com for more information and to make your reservation. Greece is now available September 1st through the 9th, going into Athens and also the island of Crete a beautiful island. Of course, we're going to have some history and culture and a wonderful time as well. So September 1st through the 9th, again, you can go to the website, travelingculturati.com to get more information and to sign up, make your reservation now. Soon to be released will be Belize, a pause and play type of journey. Going to Belize, we're really kind of taking a look at ourselves, some self-care some wellness, to pause and play. Take the time out to take care of yourself. Take the time out to enjoy and have some fun. So stay tuned for that one because that one will soon be released as well. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. I know what we all do when we have a flight that we need to book. We drive ourselves crazy trying to find the cheapest airfare. Now, I just want to warn you not to drive yourself too crazy. Yes, remember, there really is no crystal ball. While some of the myths work some of the time, they don't work all of the time. And those rules aren't always true. And yes, I use them myself. But again, we have to remember that it's not always true. If the savings is minimal, I spend my time and efforts on finding the most convenient flight for my purpose. If the saving is great, I'm more flexible with the flight schedule and days. Remember two things when searching for flights and prices. Airfares constantly change and are based on many factors. And you are usually given a 24-hour window to cancel in case you need to without a penalty. Here's some other things to consider. Be flexible with your travel dates and times. Be flexible with your destination. There may be nearby airports and cities that offer bigger savings. Use flight search sites that scan multiple airlines and flights for comparison at a glance. Use budget airlines. They really do offer savings and Not every trip will require all the bells and whistles. Sometimes it's a quick getaway and a no-frills flight may just do the trick, especially if it's going to save big bucks. Be open to making a connection. Connections are often less expensive than non-stop or direct flights. Again, this is really contingent upon the purpose of your travel. So if you don't have to be there in a hurry or if it's not as inconvenient, make that connection and save money. Sign up for alerts. Airlines will send alerts with sales, specials, and if you sign up for it, a price drop on a specific route or itinerary. If you find a price and flight that you like, go ahead and book it. Then check back in 23 hours, the window in which you can cancel or change without penalty with the airline. Book as early as possible, but not too early. The sweet spot is typically two to three months prior to your travel dates. Also, don't book too late. Use sites that allow you to mix and match carriers for the best airfares. If traveling with a large party, try to book or search for airfares that are based on one or two travelers at a time. Some of the best search sites are Skyscanner or Google Flights for flight websites. And for hotels, check out Booking.com. Happy searching. 
and good luck on your next flight. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. Joining me today is Warren Green, a ranger, an officer, and an Ironman from South Africa. He's sharing his passion for wildlife, his duty as an officer in South Africa during apartheid, and his decision to participate in Ironman. Well, hello and welcome to Traveling Culturati, Warren. Hi, Javon. Thanks for having me. So again, born and raised in South Africa. What part? I'm lucky. I come from the Western Cape. So Cape Town, it's where I spent my younger years. And then I had the good fortune of working in the wilderness with Dr. Ian Player. So I spent some time in KwaZulu-Natal in the Umfolozi Kukui biomes. And before I came out to the States, I was working out in the Kruger National Park, specifically at Sabi Sabi Private Game Reserve. Yeah, well, I have to mention some of these things because you were an officer for the South African National Defense Force. You were a South African National Parks honorary ranger. You were also a game ranger at Sabi Sabi Private Game Reserve. Of course, now you're an entrepreneur, but how fascinating to be a ranger in South Africa. That's awesome. It was. I suppose once a ranger, always a ranger, and somewhere deep inside me, I feel as though I could still step back into the wilderness and lead a safari and track a leopard. It was a part of my life and a part of my career that I really, really did cherish. I can imagine one of my highlights always, and it never gets old, and the numerous times that I've visited South Africa is to go on safari. And if you've never had that experience, you're in for a treat if you're going to South Africa. And if you're going to South Africa, make sure that it's on your list because it is a magical experience, not just to see the animals that we wouldn't see here, the big five, as we call them, in their natural habitat, but just the whole experience of a safari and what that entails, especially because we usually go either as the sun is setting or as the sun is coming up and two completely different <laughs> aspects. So again, I can only imagine what that's like living and breathing it daily. It just is super. You know, it's it's almost a spiritual experience once you're out there and on your own and you're experiencing that feeling of wilderness. You do, you question your presence on this earth and you question everything around you, the people that you meet, and then the creatures that you interact with on a daily basis as a ranger. And yeah, there is a certain element of spirituality that comes into your life just because of where you are. I think that we as a species moved so far away from our natural roots that we've kind of forgotten what the spirituality of the wilderness is all about and how we essentially are fundamental elements of our ecosystems. And it's so rewarding to have your eyes opened by being in that environment. It is something that you will definitely sense. And even as a traveler traveling with you and your businesses there, Javon, I've seen people reacting to that experience. And I don't know why it is that Africa has that very strong impact on them. Because I mean, in my opinion, wandering in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains or finding myself up in the Rockies of Colorado, you still feel that sense of wilderness, but there's something very compelling about the spirituality of being in the African wilderness. It really is. There's nothing like an African sky, especially late at night out in a national park. One of my favorite things to do along with that in South Africa is to have a sundowner, is to have that cocktail as you pull <laughs> over and wonder what's lurking <laughs> over next to you. And I have to tell you this story before we get more into the culture of South Africa, is that one time we were doing that and we had pulled over and the sun has already set and it's very dark and we're having some Amarula. And I look over and we're just below this little hill. It's a small hill, but we look over and I see what looks like wild cats walking. I can only see their silhouettes. And so I tap the ranger and I say, is that what I think it is? And of course, we're still in a protected area, but they're just on top of it there. And there were leopards walking across a family, you know. So that was the first time I had ever experienced that. But to see the silhouette at mm. night and to see them walking across this plateau, it was scary. It was exhilarating. It was awesome. I had every emotion you can think about. And I took another sip of Amarula while I watched it. Uh, that's really, really special. That really is. It's kind of like we're getting off subject here because as you can see how much I love that experience in South Africa. 
But there's something else I want to ask you, because you have here Officer and South African National Defense Force. And so can you share a little bit about that experience? Because it was during a very trying time in South Africa. Yeah, it was. And I suppose for your audience who can't see me because we're talking radio, I'm a white-born South African. And so back in the days of the 70s and 80s, when I was conscripted, all white males had to go and serve in the country's military. The black males were excluded, and that was for obvious reasons. South Africa was in the midst of its terrible apartheid years. And so the National Defense Force conscripted us to go and fight the battle against what we used to jokingly call the Swat Kafar, which was an Afrikaans, which meant the black threat or the black danger. It was masked as fighting communism. And I suppose that was enabled by the what we refer to as terrorist organizations being funded by the Cubans and staffed by the Cubans and a certain degree of training taking place on foreign shores in Russia and so on. So we kind of went in young 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds with this very confused idea and ideology that we were fighting for. And we found ourselves fighting it from within. So as conscripts, you were taught to kill people and kill people of color specifically. We were taken up to the borders of Angola, Botswana, Mozambique to fight the insurgents in those countries. Well, in fact, it was Southwest Africa at the time and not necessarily in the South African borders. But the war then moved. It changed its form and became evident in the townships, which is, again, is another aspect of South Africa, which none of us should be proud of at all. But the townships were places where black people were confined. And naturally, they could fight us from within those townships because they could organize themselves militarily. And so the war shifted. It shifted from the borders to the townships. And so we found ourselves fighting this war within the country's borders. And it was shocking. It was horrible. So we had two years of conscription where we left home and were marched off and we came back with our minds somewhat altered. And then after that, you had to complete six to eight weeks of further service every year. So you would return to a normal civilian life. In my case, I ended up serving hamburgers in a restaurant and I was plucked out of that environment every year and taken off to continue the war in my capacity as the intelligence officer for the Cape Town Highlanders, which was a unit that was said all over the place. And I had to go and do duty in the townships. And for me, I suppose, and I'm getting quite emotional here because it's talking to you about it has triggered some memories that have been locked and buried for many years. But I do remember one occasion of many, but we were up in a township north of Pretoria called Mamalodi, which was a particularly violent area at the time. It was violent because there was a lot of infighting amongst the communities of those townships, the ANC and the Mkonto Wesiswe, and the community themselves. Some people didn't want to fight. Many of them were forced to fight. This was a time in South Africa where the labor unions became very active. They became political arms, and they were able to dictate the behavior of laborers in their various fields and were very efficient in governing the behavior of people, taking over Well, I'm confusing many concepts here. uh, Essentially, the unionization brought people together. It made them sort of a homogenous group and manageable. And at the same time, you had Mkonto Wesizwe, which was the armed of the ANC, that then went into the townships and dominated the township, literally street by street, and would dictate whether people could go to work or not. And we're talking about a community of people that essentially were poor, impoverished, living below the breadline. So a very, very tough decision for them to give up a night's wages to serve the greater cause of their community. And so there was a lot of conflict within the communities living in those townships. And we would go in as the defense force to A, observe and try and gather intelligence about who was the agitator, where were they active, what sort of antics were they getting up to, try and understand how they were going to bring their war to the streets of Johannesburg, Pretoria, Cape Town, wherever. And at the same time, our job was to oppress and suppress these uprisings. Now, in that time in South Africa's history, there was this practice known as necklacing, which was a method of keeping people honest. And if you as a black person were passing on information to us as the South African National Defense Force and were caught, you obviously were seen as a traitor to that cause and you were summarily dismissed. 
But that was supposed to be a lesson to the rest of the community. And so just to describe one particular morning of my life in Mamelodi, our base was high above this valley where the, the township lay. And being high above, we were sort of on a rocky ridge. And immediately below us was the communal dump for all the waste that came out of the township, where you must understand there's very little in the way at that time of infrastructure. So it was a very smelly, dirty place to be. And we would have this stench in our faces every single day while we were manning the observation post, watching what was going on. And this particular morning, there was a plume of dark black smoke rising from one end of the township. It was kind of to the southeast of where we were stationed. And that we knew was about a 45-minute drive in our military vehicles. And typically, a plume of black smoke means that you've got a rubber fire, as opposed to a wood fire or any other paper fire. And if you saw that, then you knew from previous experience that it was tires, rubber tires from motor vehicles being burnt, which could either mean that there was some sort of roadblock taking place, trying to stop people from coming in or people from going out, or rather shockingly, it was somebody being necklaced. And that meant that they had a rubber tire thrown over their shoulders and they were doused in petrol and set on fire. And so, of course, the moment we saw that plume of smoke, we would take off where we took off for that area. And we got to it in our 45 minutes or so. And we simply found a pile of tires burning. Thank God, no human bodies. But it was a decoy. And behind us, from the other side of where we were, was another black plume of smoke. And that's where the necklacing was taking place. You had to witness this awful stuff going on, man against man, doing the most horrific acts. Um, I suppose to some degree, well, it had a huge impact on me mentally. Of course it did. And I think it is as a result of the exposure to all of that that spurred me and motivated me to pursue a career in the wilderness. And I suppose the wilderness was a place where I could move away from society and get away from people who I just saw as this horrible plague. But I do remember, and I'm just going to close on the Defence Force chapter with one last story, which I think might have got me out of further call-ups. But we were tasked by our higher-ranking officers to come up with what we call COMOPs, community operations, to try and win the hearts and the minds of people as a means, obviously, to getting information. Um, we had to come up with ideas on how we could interact with the community and make friends and, and allow them to trust us. And I was just shocked that we would even be asked to do something like that. We were wearing brown uniforms. We were carrying heavy weaponry. We were driving these awful armored vehicles. We were terrorizing people by our mere presence. And now they're saying, go down the hill and make friends. And there were a couple of us officers who were divided up where we had our platoons of people that we were responsible for. And we were asked to go and sit with our platoons to come up with ideas. Well, I walked away from that mess tent and went straight to the kitchen and I sat with my friend, the chef, Peter, and we chatted a little bit. He was preparing lunch. I was going to have nothing to do with my platoon. I wasn't prepared to ask them one question because I had it in my own mind that nothing we could do would allow us to become friends with that community after the atrocities that we had created for them. And so I wasn't going to participate. After about two hours, the officers were called back into the mess to now share the ideas that had been put forward by their troops. And of course, I didn't have any ideas put forward by any troops because I didn't discuss it with anybody. And all my peers stood up and they talked about sports days and games and how they could interact through education. Blah, blah. Some great ideas came out of that. And eventually, the CO, commanding officer of the unit, called me up and said, Lieutenant Green, you haven't said anything about your communications. What did your platoon say? That's when I let rip with my one and only political soliloquy. And I essentially said, there's absolutely nothing that we can do out here to influence the way these people think or feel. We've done enough damage as it is, and doing anything further will only damage that relationship even more. And I said, the only solution that I can see to this problem that we're facing is to open up our own suburbs and welcome these people to come and live with us. And to live with us means to observe our culture, observe our way of life and participate in our economy to be able to rise to the same standards that we set for ourselves. It was in that vein that I made that speech, 
which shattered my hierarchy of bosses and basically saw me on my way with an early release from that particular camp. And off I went. But yeah, Jovan, those were horrible days. You grow up in South Africa as a young boy where if you're lucky, your parents will have domestic servants at home who will assist with preparing meals, cleaning the house, ironing. And typically that woman would be a maid. She would be from a black community. And during those apartheid days, she had to carry something called a dompas, which basically means the stupid passport. Um, because she was black, she wasn't allowed to live in the white suburb and had to carry a pass that would indicate that she was employed by such and such a white woman and had reason to be in that community. And if she had a youngster of her own, one, two, three, four, five years of age, that little child would live with her in your home in the servant's quarter. Servant's quarter was fairly rudimentary and basic. But as a kid, if you were lucky enough to have a maid who had a child, that would be your only interaction with a black child growing up. And then miraculously, somehow, when you both reached the age of five or six, that child disappeared. And you had no further interaction with a black person other than in a position of authority. And that authority was simply dictated by the fact that you had a white skin. So you grew up through your teens with this imbalance and totally incorrect view of your own greatness and grandeur, that you had this power and this control over another race of people just simply because of your skin color. And so those formative years were incredibly dangerous as South African kids, because the opportunity to learn about people, interact with them and see and understand that you are the same, that you have the same desires, the same wishes, the same emotions was completely and utterly removed from you. And so as an adult, you have this baggage that you grow up with, and then you go into the army and that baggage is corrupted even further. It was a very trying time, and I don't wish it on any future population. It was terrible. I don't know if I mentioned, but I was part of the Wilderness Leadership School, which was an organization that takes people, particularly young leaders, out into the wilderness. And the intention is to teach them of the importance of our wilderness environment, that we as, as a race, as a species, will die ultimately if we let our wilderness die. That is the foundation of all life. And if we let it go, we're not going to have clean, clear air. We're not going to have clean, clear water. So that was the premise of the Wilderness Leadership School. But I started this branch in the Western Cape in the 80s which was when South Africa was moving at a fairly rapid rate towards the end of apartheid. We could see it coming. We could feel it coming. F.W. de Klerk stuck his neck way out, started unbanning those political groups that were forced underground because of law. And now they were starting to be unbanned and become free citizens. At that point, there was still a restriction in terms of whites and blacks not mixing and not visiting the townships and not visiting the suburbs. Well, we as the Wilderness Leadership School at that point identified a school teacher in Guguletu, which was one of the, the townships of the Western Cape. We spoke to her and said, we want to take three or four of your leading students out on a wilderness trail, and we're going to balance that group with four or five kids out of the white schools, leadership quality kids, and see how they interact with one another on a trail. Remember what I've just said, we've had teen years of not interacting with black people, not having the foggiest idea about how one another thought or felt, etc. And so these interactive trails were now going to bridge that gap of communication and doing it in the classroom of the wilderness. And I have to tell you that the results of that were mind-blowing, outstanding, so richly rewarding, because on day one, you had segregation. You had to have segregation because that's how people were Birds of a feather stuck together and you got onto the bus and off we went into the wilderness. But after about three hours of walking in the wilderness, sharing the same view of the southern sky, feeling the same stones spiking your feet as you walk through a cold stream at night, having to share the tasks of getting firewood to make your campfire so that you could be warm in the evening and have something to cook some food on. You shared those tasks. You did it together. Everybody failed at making the fire. Everybody failed at finding the right wood because they both came from different environments where the wilderness suddenly became the common enemy. To see these kids working out their differences to figure out how to make sort of a weekend better for themselves was incredible. And through that experience, by the end of it, they were exchanging home phone numbers. And for those black kids who came from the township, there weren't telephones. 
they were figuring out how to meet at a shopping center, which was downtown Cape Town over a weekend in three or four weeks time, so that they could chat and continue this friendship that had now sparked, that we had sparked through the Wilderness Leadership School. That to me was just such an outstanding experience and part of my life. When I come back, I'll continue my conversation with Warren Green. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm Javon Harley, your host and travel pro. The website, TravelingCulturati.com. Go ahead and check it out and make sure you follow us on social media. Share, share, share. Yeah, we want to know what you're up to, where you're traveling to. And you can also see what other Traveling Culturati are up to. Make sure you also check out our two upcoming trips to Croatia, July 28th through August 6th, and going to Greece, September 1st through the 9th. Now, Croatia, we are flying into Split. We're cruising from Split to Dubrovnik on a privately chartered cruise. Only 17 cabins on board, but we're already halfway sold out. This is such a fabulous opportunity. I have to tell you that we did this in 2021, and more than half the people who traveled with us in 2021 are signing up to go again. That's how much they loved it. The food in Croatia is amazing, and we're going to have a cooking class, and we're going to have some wonderful culinary delights on board. Also touring and some cultural experiences, some kayaking, wine tasting, and we are going to party. Why? Because Advantage International, sponsor for Traveling Culturati, is celebrating its 25th anniversary and... Yours truly is celebrating a milestone birthday, and we want to do it in style on board our luxury small cruiser. You can head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com, and check it out. Going to Greece, going into Athens and to Crete, September 1st through the 9th, and we are going to an all-inclusive resort in Crete. We're going to have a fabulous time. September is a great time to go. It's going to be the end of summer. So you want to have your last hurrah for summer. I know we're still in spring and feeling still some winter weather right now, but let's think ahead. As summer will be ending, we can close it out with a nice trip to Greece. I love Greece. I love the Greek food, love the Greek culture, overall love the destination. Again, TravelingCulturati.com is where you can find all the information. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, food, music, and sometimes politics and strife. I'm continuing my conversation with Warren Green, an officer, a ranger, and an Iron Man. He's really sharing his experiences with us and some of a very personal nature as a ranger in South Africa as an officer during apartheid in South Africa, and his decision to become an Iron Man. One of the questions I want to ask you as a father of two now adult sons, <laughs> were they born in South Africa or were they born in the United States? No, they both were born in South Africa. My wife is American. And so my sons both were naturalized the moment they were born. Caroline put them onto American passports right away. They had no problem coming to live in the States later on in their lives. But they were both born in South Africa. They were born at a time where Nelson Mandela had been freed from jail. Apartheid had been dismantled. And South Africa had emerged with one of the most revolutionary constitutions in the world at the time. Recognizing gender, recognizing LGBTQ, recognizing human rights across the board and the broad spectrum of what humanity is. So they were very fortunate to be born into that environment. Um, I often feel that moving them to America was something that I probably shouldn't have done because I think that they're bright boys and they have a lot to offer South Africa. They're very intelligent guys. They are, through the American education system, acutely aware of other people, other people's emotions, and being empathetic to other people's needs. At the moment, I find we're living in a strange time 
I don't want to be controversial, but I'm a wilderness guy. I observe nature and I see a male impala coming into the rut. He fights with other male impalas so he can sire his young with the female impala. I see two very clear roles in nature. It's male and female. You don't see much confusion there. And I find that in society today, and it's worldwide, we are finding confusion in our society and our roles. And I find it really, really difficult to come to terms with all of that. I'm completely empathetic to everybody. I love everybody. I love people. But I just find this compartmentalizing of people as we're doing now, making certain laws to govern our behavior towards one person or another. I don't know. I just find it really tricky to handle. I find it difficult to comprehend and understand. So my boys have been educating me in that field, and they are streets ahead when it comes to being empathetic to the needs of other people. Truly, I'm very proud of them. It's good that you have them because each generation, I think, can teach us something new about ourselves and help us grow and learn and change mm. as times change. Because we can, as we humans are creatures of habit, that we can continue to be so if we're not presented with change or the need to change. Mm. So having the next generation or young people in our lives to kind of force the envelope on that sometimes is very beneficial. But as the culture report is sometimes about politics and strife, that too is part of a culture. It can define a culture. It can change a culture. It can do many things in changing individuals and our outlook on things. So even though our culture report took a different direction today, as I'm learning more about you, we know each other in a professional manner, but certainly knowing you more on this level is a great opportunity. And I think so many times in business, we don't get that chance or opportunity to know more about a person. And again, with the things that you've shared with us today and some of those things in your past that, as you said, had suppressed and really had to think about them. And it was very elegant way in which you communicated that and shared that with us. But I'm seeing something else listed here, Warren, 2022 yes. Ironman athlete. Who tell? <laughs> it's a long story, but a short story. And I suppose the short story is COVID. COVID confined me to my home. COVID kept me from doing the things that I love doing. And I suppose when you, you watch your income dwindling to a, a trickle and you never know when that trickle is going to dry up and when the end of COVID is going to come. I needed some physical distraction to keep me sane. I've always maintained a certain level of fitness because it's just good health, but I needed something that would keep me going. And as I progressed with my fitness, I developed this idea and I've always had a healthy respect for athletes that have completed the Ironman. I just thought that was the most incredible athletic event for anybody to do. And I was aware of the event for many, many years. Anyway, so one day I decided that I was just simply going to go and do one. And I committed. I signed up for the Maryland Ironman, which took place on the 17th of September last year. I started training for it in about January. And lo and behold, come September, I was ready. And off I went and completed my First, I won't say only Ironman, but I certainly think that there are not too many more in my future because it's quite an endurance. Yeah, so I completed an Ironman. How much did your Ranger training and experience impact with the Ironman training that you did? Well, the, the Ranger training wasn't as physical as the Ironman. So training to be a Ranger is all about interpreting the environment. And what we learn about the environment is the slower you go, the more you see the slower you go, the less chances are that a predator is going to catch you. And so it's probably the antithesis of training for an Ironman, which means you're trying to go faster, further, and harder in every discipline that you do. So range of training, I needed to learn about the environment, soils right the way through to the creatures that fell on the grass that grew on those soils and why they were there, and how that circle of life, which predators belonged to the system, which didn't, and how we could conserve our environment by getting rid of alien plants, by introducing certain species to keep the balance going. Because of course, in South Africa now, all your national parks and reserves are confined spaces. You no longer have a free and open migratory system down in the South of Africa. There's just too many people. And so you learn all about those aspects. The Ironman training was really more about training my mind to get through the hardship of endurance and physical activity for around 12 hours in one day. And so that was a very different discipline, very different entirely. <laughs> you said something that startled me a bit, that 
the slower you go, the less likely you are in the wilderness to be overtaken by a predator. It's fright or flight, isn't it? You kind of think to run. We're doing it all wrong, I guess. Yeah, well, so that's a very important observation because we cannot run as far as or as fast as an impala, the primary prey species down in the wilds of South Africa. We could never do that. We could never outsprint the impala, which means if there was a lion chasing the impala and we got between the impala and the lion, chances are it would catch us before it would catch the impala. So that's rule number one. And the second part of that rule is if you stop, you can do something about that lion. You might be carrying a firearm, 375 rifle, in which case you can steady yourself wait for the line to get into that territory which is two, three feet away from you and pull the trigger and stop the line in its tracks. So you have control over yourself if you're not running. And that's why I say the slower you go, the more chance you have of surviving. But that said, perception that the wilds are a wild place and a dangerous place is entirely wrong. I'll bring you right back to the beginning where I said that we are very much part of our ecosystem. We do belong in that environment. We've just forgotten how to behave in that environment. And we are seen by almost every creature under the African sun as the primary predator. So lions fear us, leopards fear us, elephants fear us, rhinos fear us. We are a major predator and we are seen as such. We stand upright and our eyes are on the front side of our face. And that is the classic predator position. So really, we don't have much to fear other than our own stupidity in the wilderness. And if you go slow and appreciate it all, you will hear about the lion. You'll hear about the buffalo long before you see them. And so you also will learn in your training how to interpret the various sounds of the wilderness to warn you of danger. And believe me, every single animal out there that's dangerous has something associated with it that gives it away. For example, there is a bird called an oxpecker, and it has a very important function in the ecosystem. It removes parasites from your mammals. So very often you're going to find many oxpeckers on the back of a rhinoceros or feeding around the neck of a giraffe, that sort of thing. So if you are walking through the wilderness and you hear the chirping of the oxpecker, chances are really good that you're walking into a herd of buffalo. And so you stand your ground, you listen, you watch the wind, you try and figure out where the sounds are coming from, what the density of the bush is like over there versus here. And you select a path that takes you in a circuitous route around that site so that you can continue on your journey. And that way, avoid walking into a buffalo, giving it a fright and letting it charge you. Warren, what a wonderful conversation. And again, thank you so much for sharing your personal background and history, and especially being a ranger and some of the life lessons that it has taught and afforded you. Certainly an honor and a pleasure. And until we meet again, and hopefully it'll be on the soil of South Africa. Yes, please. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.